It's a wedding feast that we see today. And there were three parts to a wedding back in uh, uh, Jewish uh, New Testament times. And uh, it reminded me as I was thinking about that, that I always tell people whenever I'm preparing a couple for uh, marriage, when we start talking about the ceremony, I say, you know, there are three parts to the marriage ceremony, getting them in, getting them married and getting them out. And uh, those, but anyway, but the thing is, these three parts are not the same. First of all, there was the covenant was made, the betrothal, it was called. When a contract was, was made that this lady was going to be the wife of this man. And then maybe a year later would come the second major part, and that would be the fetching of the bride. Now, during that period of time, the groom would have gone, he would have still be in his father's house, and he would have prepared a room for his bride. And I think that's interesting because you know as Jesus prepared to go away, he says, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. So in my father's house are many rooms. Uh, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. So in the meantime, after the betrothal, he goes away and he prepares a room in his father's house so that he and his bride can take up residence in his father's house after the wedding. But then a year or so later, he will come and fetch the bride. He'll bring an entourage with him. The bride will know the day, but she won't know the hour. And so there will be a shout before he comes to get his bride. And uh, just think of all the different times that things that you hear about uh, where it says that uh, you know, Paul talks about that uh, the Lord's going to return with a shout and that we need to all be ready. And you remember the story of the, 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 that Jesus told about the, the, the 10 foolish virgins that were ready whenever he arrived, when the, when the groom showed up. And so you see, all this ties into uh, the wedding feast and the practices at that time. So anyway, he has, there's been a betrothal, and then there's going to be the fetching of the bride. And then after that, the next day comes the wedding feast, which can last a week or more. And so uh, all and the friends and family are gathered together, extended family, uh, just like uh, our family still. We we have we have third and fourth cousins that are just as close as first cousins in our family. And we get together for different special occasions. And uh, the thing is, the Lord loves those kind of get-togethers. And as you look through Scripture, you see him at some of the get-togethers that he was at were at Matthew's house after Matthew had uh, uh, just gotten up from the tax collecting table and gone to follow Jesus. 
And uh, there gathered in his house are all his friends who happen to be tax collectors and uh, sinners. Only they said sinners and tax collectors. They put it the other way around. Anyway, so there were, there's that, there's Zacchaeus. There's a meal at Zacchaeus' house. There's uh, uh, the times that, remember Mary and Martha and uh, Martha just running around hustling and bustling because there was a big get-together at Lazarus' house. And uh, so you see these get-togethers and you see Jesus blessing them with his presence uh, all the way through. And then we've already talked about a couple of the stories, a couple of different things, the, the wedding feast. And uh, different times where wedding, uh, the whole idea of the wedding is so important to Jesus. And Paul makes it clear because our connection with Jesus is like a bride and groom. And so here Jesus is. He's been invited to this feast his mother is apparently either a close friend or relative of the people that are involved in uh, the marriage. And so uh, his mom wants this to go well. And she sees that the wine is running out. And so she tells Jesus and his response, as we saw last week, is what does that have to do with you and me? That's what he said. And then he said, you know, my hour hasn't come. But then you'll notice the next thing, Mary turns to the servants and says, you just do what he tells you to do. And so tied into his response was apparently an understanding. You know how some people can just, he, he, he gave consent in his response, even though he said, you know my hour hasn't come yet. Whatever, what, what does this have to do with us? He knew. And he wanted that wedding to go well. He didn't want the people to be embarrassed. And one of the things that comes out of this is it's always good to have Jesus as a part of your life. It's always good to have, to have invited him to whatever is going on in your life. He wants your life to go well. And he sure wanted this wedding to go well and this wedding feast to go well. And probably I can see him at the same time thinking back in Isaiah. You know, Isaiah tells us all about the Lord. A thousand years before Jesus ever came along, so much Isaiah tells us about the Lord. And one of the uh, things that we see there is in Isaiah, the 25th chapter, the 6th through the 8th verses. Listen to this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. He's talking about the mountain where Jerusalem is. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. 
and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I think it's just amazing that a thousand years before, Isaiah is talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That time after Jesus has swallowed up death, after he's paid the price that separates us from God, paid for the price of our sin. Uh, It's just amazing. On that mountain, uh, there close to Jerusalem, that's where Jesus prepared the way for this feast to come about. The preparation began when he went to the cross. And so I can see Jesus just looking forward through time, knowing as he manifests himself and his glory as the son of God on earth for the first time, he does it in a setting that is moving toward and a depiction of the very end hope of his ministry and the end result of his ministry when he and his bride will be together for that wonderful wedding feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. And so, oh, and I must say, Jesus, uh, I mean, not Jesus, Sharon, uh, whenever I was talking to her about uh, the marriage supper of the lamb, she said, I wonder if there's going to be wine there. And did you notice that in the passage in Isaiah, it says, and this is both, this is in one verse, and refined aged wine. So it says, a banquet of aged wine, choice piece with marrow, and refined aged wine. The word wine is repeated twice in one verse. Whenever uh, uh, that happens in the Bible, it's emphasis. And so the Lord had an answer for Sharon right there. Yes, there will be wine at the Feast of the Lamb. And uh, the thing is, is that uh, uh, people try to say, oh, in this miracle that he turned, that was, he just turned it into grape juice. You know, Mr. Welch hadn't come along yet. I don't know if y'all know this, but when it comes to unfermented grape juice, They weren't able to keep it from turning into wine until Mr. Welch, who is a teetotaling Methodist, by the way, uh, he developed the process to where the wine could be preserved without turning into, or the grape juice could be preserved without turning into wine, so that we could have unfermented grape juice at communion. But uh, until then, it was always real wine. It's not going to be Welch's at the Last Supper, folks. And that was, he didn't make Welch's whenever he turned the water into wine back then. It was wine. And I, I would imagine that it go, went right along. If you'll recall that the steward, whatever he tasted it, he was just amazed. You've saved the best wine for the last. And here in Isaiah, it says it's going to be Good wine, aged wine, good wine. And so I'm not trying just to harp on wine, but it's the thing is, is that uh, whenever Jesus was looking forward, he was looking forward just as Isaiah was to the marriage feast of the lamb. He was going to be going to the cross to 
to pay the dowry for his bride. And then, as he said, he was going to go away and prepare a place for us that he could come and receive us to himself. And so what more appropriate place could Jesus begin his uh, revelation of himself as the son of God, as God come to earth, than at a wedding feast as he did right there? One of these days, there's going to be a feast for him and for his bride. And he wants that one to go well also. He wants it to be well attended. And he wants you to be there. Do you know that? He wants you to be there. And he has already sent you an invitation. You know, whenever there's a wedding, people send out invitations. He delivered his personally. He came here to invite us to his feast He came, he delivered it personally, and he worded it several ways just so you won't miss it. He said, repent. First words out of his mouth as he began his ministry. That means stop going one way, turn around, and start coming the other. Repent. Quit moving away from me. Turn around and face me. Repent. Come to me. He says, come to me, all you who labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your souls. And then he says, follow me. He's made his invitation to each one of us so clear. And it's because he wants you to be there at his marriage feast so badly. If you'll recall the story of the prodigal son, It ends with a feast where the friends and family of the father have come together. But the the feast isn't complete because the elder brother hasn't come in. And so what does the father do? He goes out to the son. He wants us all to make it. He wants us all to be there. And it's clear in that passage that it's only because we choose not to come that we don't come. Repent, come to me, follow me. And just like any other bride or groom, he wants you to assure him that you'll be there. If you haven't already given it, he's anxious for your RSVP. Because the moment is just not going to be the same without you being there. So how do you RSVP to Jesus and to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, the thing is, you do it the way that you know your heart is calling you to do it. With me, I knew of him, but I didn't really know him until I was 28 years old. I'd grown up in church. I had gone to Sunday school. I knew all about him. But knowing about him is head knowledge. Knowing about him is objective. Knowing about him, you can hold things out at arm length and discuss them and opinionate about them. 
The Christian faith is not just opinions and doctrines. It is experiential. It is something that we are, that is a, a part of our lives. And it's not something that uh, is just a uh, supposition. But I knew of him. I didn't know him. And so with me getting to know him, it meant coming to the end of my intellectual rope, coming to the end of my logical ropes, coming to the end of all my other ropes, and realizing when all was said and done, I really did believe that there was a God. And I realized that I wasn't close to him and didn't know him experientially because my sin had separated me from him. And I realized there was nothing I could do to undo the pain that had caused any other person. Nothing I could do to undo any offense that I'd caused to God. And I didn't know how to bridge that gap. I didn't know what to do, but I knew, like I say, intellectually, that the church said that the cross was there for the forgiveness of our sins. And so for me, it was whenever I realized that there was something about the cross that would take away that gap between us and him. And I didn't know how to bridge it. And I just cried out and said, Jesus, help me. That was my RSVP. And he immediately came and he revealed himself to me in a very real and personal way. And my life has not been the same since. And so it is with you. Your RSVP uh, might be just a, a surrendering of control. Maybe you've been just trying to live your own life for him instead of giving him your life. It may be just bowing and saying, Lord, here I am, a yielding to his reality and his presence. But somehow in all of this, it becomes, it really becomes clear that the cross is real. It's not just a principle. It's not just some theological concept. The cross is just as real as the pain that your sin has caused in the life of others. And the washing and cleansing and forgiveness that comes from him when you receive what he has done is just as real as sunshine. You know it's there. It's not just a hope so, it's a no so. I know the sun's shining outside. You may not be able to see the sun, but you see the light and you know that it's there. And so it is with the cross, whenever it's really had its effect on your life, it's just as real as sunshine in your life. You know, in the depth of your being, what the RSVP is that he wants from you. And he's waiting anxiously and lovingly to receive it if you haven't already replied. Revelation 19.9 says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, 
These are true words of God. You see, the marriage supper of the Lamb is not just a concept. It's not just a theme. It's a reality. We're all going to be there if we have been invited and accepted the invitation. The question is, is your face going to be there at the table? He doesn't want to miss a one of you. It's just as real as the cross. And he really, really wants you there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.